0: with another episode of Live On Purpose Radio. Joining me today is Susan Slotnick. And she has inspired me with the little brief thing that I know about her already. She's done some some incredible work helping people who are in, shall we say, less than ideal circumstances to do what we call on this show, live on purpose and I am happy to welcome you to live on purpose radio today. Susan, welcome. Thank you. I've been a little vague in the introduction there, but what I was thinking of you go into prisons, correctional facilities, you work with inmates. Now you've done a lot of other work as well. That's kind of related to um, helping marginalized communities or people who are in less than ideal circumstances. To live on purpose and not let life just push them around, but to take some level of control and choice. And I'm curious to hear from you, what's what's brought you to this point? What is it that has, has inspired you to take on these kinds of challenges and tasks? Just let's get to know you a little bit better that way.
1: There's a lot of research on happiness, and some of it is very extensive. A lot of it was done at Harvard University over a very long period of time. And they were able to isolate what really makes people happy and have a sense of well-being from their birth to their death. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And two of the findings make it very clear why anybody, myself, you, or anybody else, wants to make the world a better place. Basically, gratitude. Mm -hmm. People who have gratitude were found to have a tremendous amount of sense of happiness throughout their life and people who follow the golden rule and try and do things for other people. So starting from a very young age, as early as I can remember, I always wanted to help black people. Now, Mm -hmm. why black people in particular? Well, I grew up as an upper middle class young woman in a very wealthy environment in New York, Scarsdale, New York. My mother was mentally ill. My father was an autistic savant. So it was a very unusual upbringing. Wow. Yeah. And we had uh, in the neighborhood, I was so young, I thought that there were only black women in white dresses and babies that lived in the rest of the neighborhood until I found out that they were the maids. And we had a, a maid, quote unquote, who lived with us. And I did not, I was very aware of how she was treated. She was treated very bizarrely from extreme to extreme. Sometimes my mother would have a few drinks and sit down and want to be friends with her. The next thing my mother was telling her to wear a uniform at dinner. So I was very aware of the injustice going on between my mother and Pat. I never even was privy to her last name. Then in junior high school, which was in White Plains, I observed a tremendous amount of racism And again, in White Plains High School, I observed a lot of racism. And since I was flunking out of high school and I was not doing well myself, I actually used to cut classes and go to the projects and hang out with the girls there and listen to great music. And they became my friends. And I thought they were a very feisty, kind, wonderful bunch. So that inspired me. The other thing that inspired me was when I was flunking out of high school out of junior high school, I was getting all Fs. The most popular, beautiful, well-groomed girl was reading a book called Exodus by Leon Uris. And it was all about the Holocaust, what happened to the Jews in World War Two.
0: Right.
1: And I had this idea that since I was such a stupid student and I was told that I was limited and maybe even borderline retarded mm-hmm. that if I couldn't be here, I could read the book she was reading. So I read that book, which started me on a quest. And throughout my junior high school and high school career, I read every single book in the White Plains Library about the Jews, Jewish history, especially the Holocaust and what happened to Jews. So between the, the compassion I felt for Black people and realizing that I could have been uh, gassed in a concentration camp. And I saw what can happen to people, the inhumanity of people. Those two things influenced me. And for the most of my life, I was looking for my. You know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? right. So you you have um, these things met, these things met. It's a pyramid. And then there is something that very few people get to do, which is self-actualize. So I found my self-actualization going into prisons, which are environments where the right group of inmates are really have a huge wish for mental health, for change, for purpose. Mm-hmm. And I was at that point very involved in dance, which is something that I have to work in because I'm the story is very layered. Yeah. And I wanted to teach dance, modern dance, to men in prison who are primarily in New York state, black men, Hispanic men, and immigrants. And every now and then they throw in a, a white person. It's rare, actually. Isn't so yeah. dance, social justice, helping black people, plus the influence of my own religion, my own history as a Jewish woman, it all came together. And I had the best work and the most satisfying experience of my life in terms of my own self-actualization, working with inmates in New York state. How's that for an answer?
0: That is a great answer.
1: (laughs) And I'm only touching the surface of it too, because the dance thing is uh, from a standpoint of you're you're, um, a psychologist, Mm -hmm. but dancing to beautiful music And lyrical, smooth movement, not necessarily hip hop, but very smooth movement that utilizes your whole body actually changes your brain chemistry and does the exact same thing Prozac does for your brain. So I also knew that if I could get the men dancing in a very depressing situation, that they could experience um, the feel-good chemicals in their brain. Also, I wasn't just teaching dance. I was teaching first a philosophy based on the work of Gurdjieff. Have you ever heard of
0: Gurdjieff? That's not familiar to me.
1: Gurdjieff was a Russian mystic around the turn of the century who took Sufism, Christianity, esoteric Christianity, took all the traditions, put them together and developed a method for self-evolution based on being present, which they now call mindfulness.
0: Mindfulness, right.
1: Based on paying attention. So the first thing I did in the prison was run a Gurdjieff group. And then the practice of the philosophy, the esoteric philosophy, was actually the dancing. Mm. So the dancing was rooted in a in a deep philosophical spiritual tradition. And that prepared them to, while they were moving, to be aware of their feet, their shoulders, their facial expression, their arms, So they would have this powerful moment of flow where they were present, they were moving. And also, um, there's so much I could say about this. Gurdjieff had this, this feeling that well-being comes from your three centers. You have a physical center, a movement center, you have an intellectual center, and you have an emotional center. And if you are in an activity where all three of those centers are functioning equally, plus your present. That is a life transforming experience. So for the 12 years I was in the adult prisons, not all of a teaching dance, um, but most of a teaching dance. And the five years I was in the juvenile facility, the men had hundreds of experiences of flow, which prepared them for something very different than even people on the outside who are rarely present, have never danced and don't know what it is to have those three centers. The woman you mentioned who's a a six degree, you mentioned you have a friend who's a six degree black belt and who's older. Yes. All movement and karate is very beautiful with the katas and the movement that creates the same thing. You have to be using your mind There is an emotion connected with the type of movement you're doing. And then you're actually physically accomplishing the movement. So this experience of balance centers, plus being present, plus a great wish. In the Gurdjieff work, it's called wish. A great wish for self-evolution. You bring all those things together. And that's how little Susie Meltzer, who flunked out of high school, that was my maiden name, manage to find what I came into the world to do, or if I'm going to be pretentious enough to say in French, my matier. (laughs) (laughs)
0: It's, it's hard to imagine anyone thinking as a child, I want to go teach dance to inmates. It's, it's almost like our calling, our, our purpose finds us.
1: Well, I didn't have that exact specific thought. Right. You know, I didn't say when I grow up, I want to teach modern dance in prison because I had gone to the best dance school in the world. The Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo had a very famous teacher, Madame Yuskevich, Igor Yuskevich's wife. He was a famous Russian ballet teacher. And I was such a mess psychologically between my crazy mother and my autistic father
0: Uh that
1: I couldn't do the work that was required in the ballet school. Every time the teacher turned around, I would lean on the bar and I'd stop working. So and then at 11, I became totally boy crazy. All this is in my book. Mm-hmm. So I kind of got thrown out of the ballet school, too. But still in all, one of the extraordinary experiences I had, which I seem to fa- talk about a lot on, on various platforms, is that I was date raped at 18, which was oh. a terrible experience. But at, when I came home, I put on music and I danced all night because I was so sad, because I lost my virginity that way. And in the morning, after dancing all night, I didn't feel like a victim. I felt like I'd been healed. I was ready to move on with my life. And then 30 years later, I find out that that experience actually scientifically changed my brain chemistry and turned a horrendous experience into something that I found I could cope with quite easily. So from that moment, I knew that dance could heal shame, that dance could heal unhappiness, that dance could almost return lost innocence. So that was a pivotal experience that I brought with me many years later into the prison, where most men in prison, by the way, very important to know, we only see them as perpetrators. But most of them are also victims,
0: right? That's right.
1: And we don't think about the fact that they're also victims as much as we think about the fact that they're perpetrators. Whatever crimes. Many of the men in my programs, when they would, when we would have the the philosophy part of the class, they would. I never asked them about their crimes, but they would offer sometimes information and many of them had been sexually abused mm-hmm. as children many so they needed healing yes as much as the world no matter what your political point of view is uh, in terms of punishment and rehabilitation aside from punishment which some people really think is necessary and is necessary for some They also need healing and they also need love and they also need avenues for development. Because if you take away programming, all programming from prison, we're basically just putting animals in cages, treating them exactly like animals in cages. So the programming, school, uh, anti-violence programming, arts programming It's absolutely essential because most people also don't realize that over 98% of prisoners are getting out. They are going to get out eventually and go back to society. We don't realize that. Most people don't realize that. So we are responsible as a society, as a culture for who they're going to be when they get out.
0: I would love to get into the principles that are supporting that. Uh, because I'm hearing some things that I think we can, we can absolutely apply as we move forward with uh, whatever it is that we're doing in our own lives. And, and your life is an example of that. Folks, this is Susan Slotnick at Live On Purpose Radio. We'll be right back. drpauljenkins.com. And we're back. Susan Slotnick at Live On Purpose Radio today, sharing some of her experience. Susan, I was really struck with a couple of elements as you were sharing your story. You've gone into prisons. You had this experience as a young girl being raised by close to ideal parents, uh, and the different cir- circumstances you found yourself in where you've been exposed to diversity and, and people who are different from you in important ways. As you've gone into these prisons, for example, uh, you, you shared that some of the, the things that you observed there was that there's an overrepresentation of certain ethnic or racial groups in New York, and in in New York. And that may be more generally true than we want to admit.
1: I'm sure it is.
0: I know that that's triggered a lot of feelings within you about social justice and the, the prison systems and, and reforms that are needed. You, you started talking about, you know, the difference between a kind of a, a, a punitive. Let's put people in a cage for a little while. But then what turn them loose into society again? And as you were sharing all of this, it struck me that the people who populate our prisons are in fact people and that we share common experiences. What is it in your experience that you've found to be common that, that you see, regardless of where you come from or, or what you've experienced, we, we have some common experiences that tie us together as a human family. What have you noticed?
1: Well, first, I want to say that I've worked with prisoners. I've worked with very privileged young people in a professional dance company on the outside. I worked with the Catholic Church for a while. I, they took me to the Caribbean on a peace and justice mission. Plus, I did. I worked with women surviving breast cancer. I've worked with uh, AIDS survivors who are mostly down, um, considered to be marginalized or underclass people. So I've worked with a great diversity of people and Mm -hmm. here's what's common to everyone I've ever worked with human pain and suffering. Yeah. And it, you could be the most privileged person in the world. You could be the president of the United States and you have still had an experience of human suffering and disappointment. You could be Oprah Winfrey. You could be Mahatma Gandhi. That's something that everyone experiences through a lifetime. Uncertainty, disappointment. We will all experience the death of a loved one. So human pain, we'll all get a diagnosis at some point that we have to have a test for. And we have to wait it out to find out what the result is. I would also say that common to all people, I hope, I haven't seen this in everybody, but I do believe it's there. I've seen pain in everybody that I've worked with, is I think most people have a desire to have their life have meaning. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the scope of the way people approach that can be either wonderful my life has meaning because I'm trying to make the world a better place, or my life will have meaning if I murder this person who I don't like. This is going to give my life meaning. So this vastness in the way that people will answer for their own individual self, what is meaningful in my life. And that's when religion, philosophy, education, the influence of good people can come in and help humans who all want a meaningful life, how to direct that in a positive way, how to search for meaning that's positive. I happen to be probably on some levels an anti-capitalist. I don't think that most people who are wealthy are necessarily doing what they could be doing with their wealth or even their wealth is making them Mm. happier or themselves. So I think that Getting back to the question of happiness, I think when you have good values and you've been taught good values, that money doesn't bring happiness, that fame doesn't bring happiness, that looking good on paper, having a resume that looks good doesn't bring happiness. I mean, I think people search for meaning sometimes in the wrong places. And one of my missions in all the teaching I've done to all these groups, including very privileged white kids, is... You want meaning, where are you going to look for it? Do you have any idea where it is? Do you know what books to read, what movies to see, what friends to make? In your search for meaning, do you know how to seek out things that will give you the cousin to meaning, which is happiness and well-being and a sense of purpose?
0: Mm
1: So that I would say those two things the, the desire for a meaningful life and the fact that pain is inevitable are the two things that I would say are true for everyone I've ever met including myself
0: yes and myself i mean that that does really ring true and in my experiences as a psychologist i've i've seen the same thing um how we how we deal with that pain uh, how we address our search for meaning. Um, I think that's what shapes our life and brings about the results. Um, you've taken on some tasks there, you know, as you've worked with these, these prisoners and inmates over time, as well as you, you mentioned, you know, the, the privileged kids, Uh, from the upper income families um, who
1: are also in pain, by the way,
0: (laughs) who are also a lot of times. Uh, We can look at someone on the surface. Can I just say something before
1: I forget? I'm sorry to interrupt. Please, please,
0: please. But I
1: think one of the most awful thing that's going on in our country right now Mm -hmm. is the division between the haves and the have nots Mm -hmm. is that people see privileged white. One segment of society sees privileged white people as never having experienced pain. And the other half sees mm-hmm. underprivileged people as not worthy of what they have. So the division is very great and rarely, and getting greater. And it's being mm-hmm. caused by both extremes, in my opinion. It, yeah. Do you you understand what I mean? And that makes me very sad. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, at my age, if I don't sometimes interrupt, I forget what I was going to (laughs) say. And then I have to say, are you so sure what you had to say? Was that important that you had to interrupt? And that's another question to grapple with.
0: Well, the division perpetuates the problems (laughs) that we have in our society. Absolutely. As, As we see each other and focus on those differences and even Inmates and prisoners i've I shared with you before we went on the mic today, Susan, that I've done a little bit of work in the prisons as well, not nearly as much as you have, but occasionally i'll be invited to go give a keynote for a group of inmates or to do a little training or uh, to share some time with them on the inside and um, when i when I go into this room of inmates and I realize that many of them are Younger than my own sons. Uh, this is not an adult facility. Yep. They're younger than my, and some of them are older than my father. Yep. And they all experience pain and they all have a story and they all seek for some kind of meaning to their life. And when I see them as my, my fellow human beings and not as inmates per se, Mm-hmm. then I can show up a little differently for them. And I see part of, part of what you're doing as inspiring people to do that. I mean, your work has been featured in, in uh, television and radio programs. And I think there's a documentary film, a little short, uh, called The Game Changer, uh, where you've been able to inspire people to maybe see things a little differently. And, and not just things, but each other. That I hope so. The other people that, that populate the planet with us.
1: Well, the game changer was just happened through serendipity. It was the strangest thing. I want to say that I've had so much. Notoriety, notoriety, that has a negative connotation. I've had so much acclaim. I've had notoriety in a different part of my life when I was younger, (laughs) but um, I've had so much acclaim and I didn't up until now with these podcasts did not do one thing to make it happen. And I thought I was helping a Malaysian woman who got a Fulbright scholarship with a school project that she somehow found me on the Internet and said, I need to make a movie that's a profile of someone for my school Uh project. And I always help young people. That gives my life meaning. So I said, "Okay, come on up and we'll make this. Do you know that movie won first prize at Cannes Film Festival? (laughs) (laughs) How do you like that?
0: Who'd have thought? I got richly
1: rewarded for saying, I think I'll help a young person with a school project. Yeah.
0: Right. But the content of it is inspiring because I think there's something inside of all of us that wants to know that there's some inherent good in people, that we don't have to categorize them with the traditional uh, prejudicial categories that that we pick and that causes the greater divisions in our societies. And that's that's a big part of what I appreciate about what you're doing and what you've shared. Susan, you've got a a book too. It's called flight, the dance of freedom. Tell us a little bit about your book.
1: Well, I wrote the book because most people, when they get to this point in their career, write a memoir Uh and I have been a writer all my life. I actually have a degree in oil painting. There's one of the paintings. It's big. It's six feet by six feet. And I've been the columnist for my local newspaper here in the boonies since the 1980s. So I wrote the book for two reasons. I tell my story, which is filled with abuses early in life and failures. And Mm -hmm. I I became something wonderful, in my opinion. So it's (laughs) it's to inspire people. I I don't believe in false modesty. Yeah. It's bull. It's bull. It's
0: it's genuine. But,
1: but I um I wanted to inspire people who were told they were retarded, who flunked out of school, who had a lousy parenting. I wanted to tell them this. You could turn this into the best thing that ever happened to you if it informs your life in a positive way. So that's the yeah. first half of the book. The second half, I actually tell the stories of a lot of the prisoners lives and the whole story of going into prison and what I learned and I've I've been told by people who read the book, you completely change my idea of who it is we incarcerate in America. Yes. And so that was um, in my tradition. It's called a mitzvah. It's Mm -hmm. good deed. Uh, The second half of the book is trying to encourage people to care about them and maybe to use their talents to volunteer in prisons because we don't spend a great deal of money rehabilitating people. So I think the book will inspire that. And there's places where it's very funny. Mm -hmm. And then there's a second part of the book, which comes totally from left field, but I wasn't interested in writing a new book and spending all the time and money on it. So the second part is very short essays on called my COVID diary, and they're very funny. Oh, I write about having my colonoscopy during
0: COVID. <laughs> oh, fun. Yes, I'm and over they're 50. Humor. I get it's, it. Uh-huh. It's
1: humor. It's humor. The, that second half of the book is all humor. And um, fun. I think the book, the book's gotten incredible reviews. I mean, really bizarre, bizarre almost. So <laughs> I think it's a good book. And I've certainly picked it up many times and started to read it and said to myself, Little Susie Meltzer, who flunked out of school, who wrote flunked this book. Out of
0: school. Yeah. Isn't
1: that amazing? You wrote this book. I'm still, you know, because part of us psychologically never really gets over the. The traumas of youth, Yeah. we take them yeah. and we do something with them. But there is a part of me throughout my life, and it may, almost makes me teary when I realize this. I still can't believe what I've accomplished because the little girl who was told by every teacher and every adult that I was never going to amount to anything, that I wasn't going to do anything good, that I was limited, recalcitrant, had a low IQ. I think my IQ never tested uh, even to 90. Mm -hmm. And here I am, a published writer, and I've written thousands of articles and painted hundreds of pictures and won a movie at Cannes. But still, there's a part of me that, that still can't believe it because the little girl is still saying, me, I did that? (laughs) I can't believe that's me.
0: (laughs) Susan, thank you for sharing that. Your life, your story is so inspiring. And I hope that some of you who are listening can feel that as well. And if you have any doubts, take Susan as an example. Little Susie Meltzer.
1: Now you told me I could tell you about the website. Absolutely. Where can, where can okay. we
0: connect with you?
1: OK, so I have a website called Susan and it has paintings on it and articles on it and publicity. It also has the game changer, which ah. is a, which you can see and you can see the men dancing. And the best thing on the website is that if you go to the place where it says prison program, you can see the men dancing Based on mindfulness, after my, me training them for eight years, many of them were in the whole time, doing Alvinelli's Revelations, a remake of Alvinelli's Revelations inside the prison. Wow. And you can see that there's three videos on there. One of them is very grainy, but there's a video on there called "Finally Free." They're still inside, but they're dancing, so they called it "Finally Free." That show, wow. that was the name of that show, it was a full-length concert we did for the general population in the prison. And part of it is on the website. And oh, then the book can be, you can buy the book from the website too. Everything's on the website.
0: Okay. Awesome. So that's Susan Slotnick, spelled S L O T N I C K.
1: Yes, not Snotlick like they used to call me in junior high school.
0: Oh yeah. Slotnick. Okay. So Susanslotnick.com. That's where we can connect to the documentary, the books there. Uh, more information about how to get involved, the whole thing.
1: The whole website. If I look at the website, I get the same response. That's my website. How did that happen? (laughs) Nobody would ever have thought that I believed in me, but me.
0: Susan, (laughs) thank you so much for joining us here at Live On Purpose Radio today.
1: And thank you. And this is your purpose. I take it. So it's a good one.
0: Yeah. Well, and and it's fun to collaborate with people like you who are also living on purpose. Folks, as you've listened to this and as you've felt inspired, please take action on that. It's time for all of us now to go live on purpose.